Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. As seen on HBO's Girls, Ophira Eisenberg hosts the Moth's monthly story slam in New York City, as well as Moth events across the United States. You can also hear her weekly on NPR as host of the trivia game show Ask Me Another. Her memoir, Screw Everyone, Sleeping My Way to Monogamy, was optioned for a movie. She's come a long way from Alberta, Canada, so let's get to it! Anything in a studio, or is it just all live from the bell house? And- uh, we do a lot of, like, tops and tails. And then we do fundraising shows in studio. And that's from WNYC? No, it's at the NPR Bureau. Oh. The NPR Bureau, which is just a nice way of saying a small office with a couple of production studios. <laughs> it's it's not... Uh, WNYC is quite beautiful. Right. Because uh, they had a renovation. Make sure this is off. But the NPR Bureau... It's not awful, but it's small. There's a lot of people cramped in, and it's a little older. Could use a facelift. Right. But that means it just has charm. <laughs> Nonprofit charm. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, I'm here with the actress who played Ophira Eisenberg in the season five finale of HBO Girls. Please welcome <laughs> Ophira Eisenberg. <laughs> That's awesome. I know playing yourself is quite a high. Then you start questioning yourself. You're like, what am I like? How would I say that? Even though you were doing the thing you're going to leave me after this to do. That's right. Right after this, I'm hosting at the same place. The whole thing is exactly the same. <laughs> the moth story slam at Housing Works. Housing, housing Works. works. Housing, housing Works. Bookstore. And cafe. Yes. Was that uh, was that in the script that you were going to play yourself? Because, you know, Adam Wade and Seton Smith and other people were in there. Yeah, it was... But not playing themselves, necessarily. Necessarily. It was, I think, one of the weirdest things I've ever seen where... Uh, so I was asked to do it through The Moth. You mm-hmm. know, basically, girls contacted The Moth and said, we're huge fans. We want to recreate this. This is going to be Hannah's last scene. Uh, kind of actually interesting way, because in a different mode, that would be like kind of a VO, I think, kind of summary of the entire season. I've seen that before as sure. a device. But this was a different way. Have her tell her personal story. That it was her summary. And instead of trying, they were just like, you guys know how it goes, so just go. And the producer of The Moth, Jen Hickson, who does The Moth uh, Story Slams, she called me and said, you know, here's a deal. You want to host it? And I was like, yeah, great. <laughs> uh, and then I got the script and, you know, the pages, very the official page of the script. And it was just weird seeing my name. And then underneath, hi, I'm Ophira <laughs> Like someone typed that up. And made sure everyone had a copy, so it was in the script. It was very surreal, ultimately (laughs) surreal. At least you could remember your lines. Yeah, you would be surprised how many times I went over it. (laughs) I'm Ophir. Fuck. I'm Ophir now. (laughs) Well, that that leads me to ask you for the pronunciation. uh, Was was that also in the script, or was that just your Canadian charm? Horvath. (laughs) Yeah, they they were like, "Can you get it wrong?" And I was like, "No problem." No problem. But, you know, there was that was not necessarily a improv on the spot, uh, but there was a lot of improv. Mm-hmm. They were pretty loose with their script around that. 
Okay. Moss, like I think Adam's lines, he jazzed up a little. <laughs> uh, and the uh, the snippets of storytellers you saw, who are all people I know from the Moth, yeah. they took a line from their story, but that w- that was actually their words. Right, their yeah. actual their moth actual stories. words. Yep. Now, when you were a small child in Calgary <laughs> last year, yes, did you imagine that you could make a living getting up on stage in a bookstore and sharing slices of your life? Well, with people? if only that was making a living. <laughs> that is one small part of it, right? But I know what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. You're saying that that could be the thing. That could be the thing. I don't think anyone makes a living from storytelling. Let me just clarify sure. that. Yet. Or will they ever? I'm not sure. But the moth is a vehicle, or storytelling in general is a vehicle for a bunch of things. Writing, solo shows, Right, you can up. develop it into a one-person show, which goes off-Broadway, and then yeah. goes Broadway, and then it becomes an HBO special, <laughs> and yes. a book, and then a movie deal. Right, we know that story. Right. <laughs> uh, there's a and there's a lot of book deals. We partially live that story. We partially live that story. And by we, I mean you. I, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess so. Um, when I was a small girl in Calgary, I think I did think uh, anything was possible. And then I grew up a little bit mm-hmm. and thought, oh no, 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 nothing is possible. <laughs> so then the trajectory changed. And uh, but no, I, I, in my wildest dreams, I didn't think. I could actually do what I wanted and make money. However, I do work so hard. Did you know what you wanted at an early age? No, not really. I, I was, I know, I'll tell you this though. I took ballet. I was, I really, I, like a lot of small girls, I wanted to be ballerina, just mm-hmm. twirl around. Ballerina, pretty, pretty. And then I finally went to ballet classes and it's hard work. Uh, and that was great. Uh, but, it was way harder, and I was not a natural, but I stuck with it. <laughs> but at the end of, I think it was when I was in high school, I was still taking ballet, and people got awards at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And I got Miss Personality. And I say, nothing says, you're not going to be a dancer <laughs> like an award. But I was chatty. I was chatty, and I knew I really liked engaging and trying to make people laugh. And my family is very... They're funny and judgmental at the same time. Perfect. So um, if, if you're yeah. watching dance, really, any of those dance contest shows, they always talk about let your personality come through. I know, through so, your dance. Yeah. God, I would not see it know in your how face. to do that. I would not know how to do that. Yeah, you're right. They always do that. Uh, right? You got to shine. <laughs> you got to shine. Big smiles, ladies. Now, you, uh, you went through a couple of big traumatic events in your childhood. You, How many can one go through? It keeps well, going. There, well, there were there were two huge ones. One, you almost died. It's true. In a, in a car accident when you were eight. Yep, that's right. And then about five years later, your dad dies. Correct. Which which one of those things? <laughs> yeah. Which one of those things more altered your sensibility, life ambitions? Okay. Car accident. Um, although I could make an argument for both, but I will say this about the car accident. Now I was young, so I don't remember, but I do remember my school teachers saying to my mother, only, you know, the kind of things you remember because you hear it later in life and go, that is weird. Saying I was very, very shy. And supposedly after the car accident, I was very talkative. It's like a little something got knocked loose. Yeah. I was a, I was a super shy kid too. And? 
there was one one grade where we were supposed to give book reports and I refused to get really? up. Yeah, and I had <laughs> to stay after school. And that, yeah, that will teach you. Shame you. Oh, I'm shy. How about you shame me? Because that will really bring me out of my shell. Thanks. Really. And now I want everybody to hear me. <laughs> no, like Please. I don't have that problem. Uh, I was actually, I saw a friend who I, a very funny comedian, uh, Brian Olson, mm-hmm. who's a writer today, and we were just talking about, uh, you know, having a really tough family when it comes to jokes, really like judgmental, uh, jokey family, but they're really tough. We were just talking about how many years we bombed. In, with our family, just bombing <laughs> that, to the point where you go, I'll just move to New York because how much worse could it be than this? Right. I mean, that's <laughs> that's when people talk about the comedy seller comedian's table. That's the comedy family busting each other down. Right, right, exactly. Bombing in conversation. <laughs> There's nothing like it. Every dinner party I've ever been to with my family, just bombing left, right, and center. What do you do? Oh, you're the comic. That's the best part with, like, the random outlier at the dinner party who doesn't know the family dynamics. When was the first time you were comfortable saying that to your family, that you were a comedian? Oh, um, they knew, because I, I started a little later. I started well after college okay. or university, as I like to say. Because you're saying, Canadian. Yeah, I know that. Uh, so they knew, uh, and they were very... My mother was just confused, frankly. She just was like, what? You know, it just seemed like crazy. Hope she. I was also s- sort of working in IT, starting to work in IT right around that time. There's and good s- money there. No, it's not bad. <laughs> so she always exactly would be like, well, but you know those computers. You know those computers. <laughs> I hear those are a hit with the kids. The computers. Uh, and my well, your parents were older. Yeah, much older, much older. My mother's eighty-six right now, as I speak. And you are twenty-two. I know 22. it's weird, right? How is that even possible? But she had she had me super late. Well, I said that because I know life. from reading your memoir that you have siblings who are I have like two, de- that are two so decades older. Than exactly. You. Yeah, I know. It is the age split is so bizarre and rare. Um, yeah, because my oldest brother is in his sixties. Uh, and then I'm like early forties. <laughs> I'm still not attaching to it. How much did seeing your siblings go out in the world and try different careers influence you, or did it not? Well, you know, I will say because you said you said about my father dying, right. and I will say that my father was not into anyone uh, pursuing any kind of artistic endeavor because. Sort of the classic immigrant story, you know, like, I worked so hard to get you guys to this great, better place to live. You're not going to spoil it by taking improv classes, right? <laughs> uh, and so my and my older brothers and sisters, different time, obviously, but they all, pre- you know, they took jobs, like mm-hmm. real career paths. And only my old, my brother, that's one up for me, my older brother, but that I have so many, right. uh, and I went the artistic route, the pure artistic route. He is a goldsmith. Uh, he's like great visual artist and an amazing goldsmith. And I went for comedy. And I think my other sisters and brothers may have like they they are artists. They are uh, most of them can do great things with their hands, like actual physical cool art. Uh, my sister had a great singing voice, but they were not at all encouraged to pursue that in any way. But because your dad died when you were a teenager. There was no one holding us back. Just your Isn't mom. Isn't that crazy? And my mom was like just too focused on keeping stuff together. 
She didn't want you to go into the grocery store business? And... No, she would try to get out of the grocery. That's Yeah, so we owned, that was the family business. My father was a teacher. He was the principal of the Hebrew school in Calgary, and then he left that to run groceries, as did grocery stores, as did my uncle, and we all grew up in grocery stores. It's a great skill. I work now. I volunteer work, whatever that's called. Mm-hmm. I'm a member of the Park Slope Food Co-op, and oh, let nice. me tell you, I have a lot of experience. <laughs> <laughs> What, um, what kind of a co-op member are you? Uh, enthusiastic. Too enthusiastic. I think it's annoying. I think it's annoying to be around me at all times. But you don't stick to the rules. like I, I always forget there are rules. Okay, that's... <laughs> I, kind of I like to forget there's rules. Just like, can't we all just kind of figure out how it works while doing it? Right. What's reasonable? We just agree on that. Rules. So we... Yawn. <laughs> so you didn't have to do that. Does... Your family no longer has any grocery stores? Or no grocery know? stores. So after my father died, my mother ran. That was actually basically the first job she ever had in her life because she got married and was pregnant after World War II. Yep. Crazy. That's uh, how you have a baby boom. That is how you have a baby boom. Exactly. <laughs> so she uh, she was a, you know, a, a homemaker, I guess mm-hmm. you could say, even though... I'm sure she would look down on homemakers because what she did was so much harder. Uh, and and she then my father died. She took over that business and ran it for about five years. And then was just like she was done. It was hard work. Everyone's always stealing from you. You know, and it wasn't – it's not just the customers. It got, would get robbed. It's not just the customers stealing from you. The people delivering stuff, like the guy who brings in the milk. You have mm. to count all the milks. Because and get him to move all of the th- all of the crates because there's you know there everyone is stealing he's making he's shorting you a milk yeah like it was just a constant everyone's skimming off the top everyone's stealing yeah even with the skim isn't that crazy yeah yeah so you find like a couple honest people and you treat them like gold that reminds me of this comedy club owner when I lived in Arizona he was always accusing everybody who worked for him of. Stealing. He's probably right. <laughs> now I'm now that I think about it. He probably was right. Probably right. I thought he was being paranoid. I'm like, this person seems nice. Why would they steal? No way. <laughs> no They're way. They're all probably a bunch of degenerates. Yeah, I've known a lot of people over the years that own have owned bars, not so much comedy clubs. Like I've been, but I knew a lot of people close close to me who owned bars at one point, and they're just like, oh well, you know, just you're being robbed blind right. <laughs> every day. <laughs> I mean, you're working in the drug trade. Basically, yeah. The the legal drug trade. The legal drug trade, yeah. So, yeah, you're going to have a lot of, like, substance abusers who are... Yeah, and we just, we don't have a model where someone's like, oh, my life's ambition is to work in a restaurant or a bar. You know, that's just like a job that yeah. they're going to have for a while and probably... A lot of cash under the... Tons of cash, giving free stuff. Yeah, you're just, you're constantly just wa- watching everything go So away. why would you leave the IT, like your mom, why would you leave IT field for this world of, of artistic Trust crazies? me, I think about it all the time. Um, what was the moment? That that convinced you you had to do this. You know, there was. Well, now that you've asked, <laughs> um, I took a comedy workshop in Vancouver, BC. It was yes. well before I took it seriously, but I took a comedy workshop. I didn't know what I was doing. Let me tell you, I was rolling around post, you know, university with my cultural anthropology degree. So 
a on one side clueless and on the other side so afraid to admit what I wanted to do because it was performance. But it was kind of late to start, and I really didn't know how to do it. And stand-up comedy, I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't even really know what it would be like to be a woman in stand-up comedy. I even attached to the fact that it was just guys. I didn't really get it. Like other than, you know, Joan Rivers, which of course was an icon, but I didn't look at Joan Rivers and see myself, right? Per se. Uh, and then there was a workshop. I volunteered at a comedy festival in Vancouver. And I met some amateur stand-up comedians uh, who were also volunteers, and they were really nice people. I hung out with them a little bit. They told me about this comedy workshop. I went to it. I was going to sneak out before they asked for the money. That was my big plan. Because <laughs> it was. I'm just <laughs> auditing this. I'm just. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, at lunch I'll leave. <laughs> you know, and of course they knew what they were talking about. They don't let you. That you walk in, you pay. Right. Yes, yeah, so it was 300 bucks or something, which just was like more money than God. To That's me. why some people are. Violently against comedy classes, and I, like. I kind of am too. As someone who even like maybe the the trajectory of my entire life was this moment that I'm talking about, which would make me pro that because uh, you everyone does need a, an entry point. But I am morally against someone taking money to basically do what I needed them to do, which nobody else was doing, which was to look at me and say, hey, I think you really have talent, and I think you have something to say, and you have some sort of stage presence that when you're on stage, people really want to look at you and hear what you're saying. You should think about this in a big way. And I would have never known that. It was so different than anything anyone had ever told me in my entire life. It was an amazing... And I thought, can I believe this and give it a shot? Right. Well, they don't have, I mean, they have guidance counselors in high school, but they don't. No, no, the, no, no. Sean, Sean. Adult life. They don't have someone to just You know what they have you. now? What? They life have, coaches? They have people, <laughs> they have parents who encourage them from the second they're born. <laughs> That's what I, oh, they the have kids now. Days. Kids these days. The kid, I know that makes me feel so old, but the truth is, I'm just, nothing is off limits I'm for these kids. Just they can do anything. Of them. I'm just jealous of them because I would have loved to have started uh, at least from zero, <laughs> not from negative twenty, working on the sort of confidence right. and can I do this and is this even possible? I would have loved to not have to give myself that pep talk all the time and just go, "This is what I'm good at. This is what I like, and I'm doing it." Like, I have to convince myself into that. Still? Constantly. Yes, still. That's crazy. Oh, that's nice. I mean, that's it's nice understandable. That. I'm going to go home and cry. And... <laughs> but you know. But know. no, I've, I have Ophira Eisenberg <laughs> in front very, of me. That's very But you know. Not anybody go, can say that. Shows go well, shows don't go mm -hmm. well. Things, you know, I pitched something the other day and I could just tell on the phone that they hated it. <laughs> I was like, oh, God, this never ends. How could you tell on the phone, though? How uh, could you really tell? Or was that just in your head? No, no, because I got this. They were like, oh, yeah. All right. Well, you know, we're listening to a lot of different pitches. <laughs> I was like, don't give me you're listening to a lot of pitches. Bullshit. I can fucking see through that. What am I, 22? I've heard this before. <laughs> so you do the workshop. I do the workshop. And then what? What's your next step after that? Did you know what to do? No, I didn't know what to do. That club had a <laughs> – what an idiot I am. Uh, that club had a situation – no bringers. There were no bringers at mm -hmm. the time. 
uh, it had a situation where you had to call. It was something like you had to call on a Tuesday. The amateur night was on a, the following Monday. So you had to call on a Tuesday and say that you wanted to do the amateur night on a Monday uh, via a voice message. Mm-hmm. And then the owner would listen to the messages. And I think it was it was some combination of if he liked you and when you called in that, you know, there was some fairness to it. Like just basically there was enough um, spots that he could almost accommodate everyone. First of all, just think about that. And then, so, but it was some combination of you were kind of interesting to him, so we wanted you on the show, and you had to call in and follow the rules within the specific time to get in the running. Well, I, I couldn't make myself call him on Tuesday. I, all of a sudden, I remember on Wednesday, like I was just in full crazy sabotage mode for a while. I'd call too late. I'd call too early. I'd call the wrong day. I'd, somehow, I'd screw it up for a while. And then finally, I did it right. And I got on. A few times. Okay. And got my feet wet. Uh, and, it, yeah, and th- that's when it started to become real in the sense that you're on an amateur night, but now you're, you're not in a class setting. You're performing in front of people who paid money to see amateurs, but they know why they're there. Right. Uh, which is, again, hilarious. Think of it. No bringer show. People used to just come to the club to see amateur night. And this is not the 80s I'm talking about. This is the 90s. The late 90s. Uh, yeah. Like, even, yeah. And then, so soon after that, though, I kind of started and decided to move to Toronto pretty quickly. Like, I'd barely done any shows to speak of. And I was like, I'm moving to Toronto because that's where the real comedy scene is. Uh, and I think I just wanted to, I really just wanted to give it a shot. I was also, I broke up with the guy. I was like, it's time to skip town. <laughs> Now I've I've had Bonnie McFarlane on the podcast. Yeah, she's also from Alberta. So she was a legend when I started comedy. I was going to say because she went from Alberta to Vancouver to Toronto to New York. I know this is like so. It's, it's basically this weird getting your feet wet thing. It's mm-hmm. like you can't. Uh, you have to really admit to yourself that you want to do this. And then once you're in Toronto, everyone just talks about New York all the time. That you're finding, like, why don't I just move to that place everyone keeps talking about all the time that they want to go, but they are constantly frustrated that Toronto, either they're going Toronto's just as good, or they're like, it's not as good, or it's different. Mm-hmm. You're just like, why don't we just go to New York already? All right, but you and Bonnie didn't cross paths. No, when she, so somehow she was ahead of you. She, she was just ahead of me, and she was a legend in the sense that her and I knew Lynn Shawcroft for right. one second. And Lynn was gone. Like, I barely okay. knew Lynn. I had a lot of friends who knew her uh, in Toronto, but I barely knew her. And she had already moved. And she was next line. Because I think it was something like Bonnie went to the Montreal Comedy Festival uh, and did New Faces and got a deal. And then either the next year or right following that, Lynn Shawcroft went to Montreal, did New Faces, mm-hmm. and got a deal. And then they were both living in L.A. on their deals mm-hmm. and friends. And they were, for us amateur stand-ups in Toronto, they were like the legend. They were like, these women did it. I, you know, we, I didn't even know what, uh, like, I had to learn what a deal was. <laughs> but the fact that they had done it and also, then what happened, too, was that was pretty much when the deals started to end. <laughs> right. Because, uh, yeah, it was like the heyday. There was that heyday. There was of, a comedy boom. And yeah, there was of a development, development deals. Boom, and then, then nothing. Yeah. So I've been pretty amazing at hitting every low point in the um, 
yeah, the sort of world of stand-up. When I started, it was a bad time. The development of deals dried up. But now, I hit, now we're in a heyday. I hit storytelling at the right time. I cannot believe it. I thank the stars that I just happened to love the moth and gravitated towards it out of utter love for the form, expecting nothing out of it, and was able to be part of something as it rose. It is so cool to be a part of something as it rises. Right. Yeah. Before that happened, though, how? so you were in Vancouver for just a hot minute. Yeah. Then how long were you in Toronto? I was in Toronto for four years. Okay. Yeah. I always say, I, th- I feel like it's four years. Sometimes it feels like longer, but it was around four years, yeah. Did you do all the Yuck Yucks? T- I did Yuck gigs? Yucks. Yeah, so I did Yuck Yucks, and so there was a weird thing, too, because there was a Laugh Resort and Yuck Yucks, and mm-hmm. I was sort of more of a Laugh Resort comic, okay. But and they made you choose right. between Laugh Resort and Yuck Yucks, and there was like a rivalry between the two, uh, but I, you know, we, there was a bunch of us that were part of this new, uh, at the time, um, guard coming up, and mm. we were like, well, we have, until we're, someone's really paying us money, we don't have to choose. <laughs> Uh, and the both clubs were like, well, I'm all right. <laughs> so I, we would bounce between the two doing their amateur nights and then eventually paid spots. But when I started actually being paid more, the rivalry had calmed down. So I did a, I did a little at both. But I was mostly a Laugh Resort comedian, a club that I believe is gone. What was the, what was the road like in Canada then in the nineties. <laughs> so I never went on the road as uh, like going across the oh, country. Okay. I mostly stayed uh, in around your, Ontario. In your province. I stayed around Ontario. Uh, Maybe Mississauga. Or... Uh, yeah, went to Mississauga exactly. Mississauga. That's where uh, some, some stuff are, out of Kingston. Weird. Hamilton. <laughs> yep. Uh, and it was yeah, there was it was rough. You know, you forget because Canada is such a resource based economy. That although people are liberal and nice and whatever your, your stereotype is, we're also talking like miners and loggers and oil <laughs> people, lumberjacks, you know, that are not exactly into, uh, you know, uh, subtle co- comedic tags. <laughs> Book learning. <laughs> Some introspective comments and observations on your soul. Mm. The torture that you go through in romance. <laughs> They're a little bit more like, say fucking something funny now. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, that was, yeah, so I understood the road. I became pretty aware uh, of how that worked. And then I moved to New York where writing, I felt like, was the most important. When I moved here, writing, it was just all about writing. Performance was important, but people were just so into the, hearing the writing on stage. Now, you, you mentioned the, uh, or laughed off the, the possibility of making a living yeah. with this. What what other jobs were you holding down? <laughs> when I moved here? Yeah. Oh, I did a little of everything. Uh, I, well, I, first I was illegal when I moved here, so that made perfect sense. Um, so I worked in retail. I worked in some East Village dress shops. I, had, I was in part of the underground railroad <laughs> of East Village dress shops. I... Uh, I didn't work in any restaurants. just was not good at that. Then I got a job in another... I bounced around a couple comedians, two of them separately opened up IT businesses. Okay. And so I worked for one of them really more in sales and some IT and then and got them to help me get a um, temporary work visa. And then I worked for another one. And in between that, I did some personal assistant stuff. Uh, I did cater. I did cater waitering. 
um, I'm trying to think. I did. Oh, like I did. Party this, down. What's that? Like the stars series party down. Yeah, like the star. Yeah, exactly. Exactly the same. I it was some high end stuff though. Right. I do remember. Not it like house stuff. parties, more like banquet halls. It was like big fundraisers. Yeah. Yep. For you know, some, like Frank McCourt, I remember was at one. Paul Newman was at one. Um, I did. I was at part of a concierge service for people. This is before Airbnb. There were companies that would buy up apartments around luxury apartments and like Trump plaza and stuff like that and then i was the concierge so when tourists from wherever ohio or wherever the fuck would come into town i would greet them show them you're from calgary (laughs) i know it's like i'm so much better (laughs) thank you for pointing that out sean Like Ohio is, yeah, you know, Hillbilly. that backwards place. Ohio, you're from Calgary, the whitest, trashiest cowboy place on the planet. Their Olympics seem fun. I was in the opening ceremonies of those Olympics. Little known fact: the ballet paid off. What did you do? I danced. I was a little. I was a young, young, young lass. Uh, yeah, and then there was this whole big dance scene. It was kind of folk. It was sort of um, French Canadian folk dancing, but mm-hmm. you know, you needed because it was the whole arena. You so you needed thousands like and yeah, thousands. thousands, thousands, and I was one of those thousands and thousands dancing. Wow! What kind of mementos do you have from that? Uh, I have a VHS tape. Okay. Uh, I have the costume. I do have some like tickets, and yeah, they didn't give you like grab bags though. You'd think mm-hmm. they would. Um, I don't know. Did they have swag in? Yeah, was it really swaggy? You know, there wasn't really swaggy. I do. I will never forget though. That I think it was the second Olympics where they did that thing where everyone could pull out a poncho from their seat and put it on, and then the uh, oh, arena would create create a, a picture. Yeah. Uh, and I remember because I was down in the arena, and everyone pulled out their ponchos, <laughs> and on one side it was, of course, the Olympic rings, and on the other side, uh, or the rest of it, sort of uh, two seventy of the arena was flags of the world uh and it made yeah i i a lot of us were crying what part of the what part of beautiful what part of the uh diorama were you i was i was really close to the athletes like uh Mm -hmm. like i guess home plate Uh, if you dug up the VHS tape and put it in a VCR, would you be able to spot yourself? Well, it was one of these montages, mm-hmm. and I feel like I was in it. You know, I have to. I'm gonna go. I'm going back to Calgary Upta- in a month. I have to see if I can dig this stuff up. Gotta update your reel. <laughs> that would be amazing. Sizzle reel. That'd be amazing. That's my sizzle reel. Just like ta da. Yeah, just a quick thing, a stand up thing, yeah. a little Olympic dancing. <laughs> And HBO's girls. And HBO's girls. Come on, you got cover oh all my the, god! You, you cover all the demographics. Now that's a career. <laughs> so when did when was when did you realize that it it was a career and you could you didn't have to have a full time day hustle? Um, you know, I said there's two answers to that. I started going on the road a lot, mm-hmm. and then I was just making money. Like started about I would say eight years ago. I was going on the road. I was making money. I was going on the road, too, with the moth and making money. I had my hands in, like, all kinds of things. I mean, I was writing uh, sketches for um, Your Tango, which is a relationship website that they were filming. I was doing all kinds of little things and cobbling them together. And then Anthony Jeselnik and I became friends, and he took me on the road with him, which was great and super fun. Got to play great places. Um, And it was all... 
Yeah, so that, and then I got the book deal, and that felt very real. And then right following that, I got the NPR job hosting the trivia show. Ask Me Another. Ask Me Another. And that, all of a sudden, I was like, if I can keep this going, I'll actually be doing something. (laughs) Yeah, I'll actually be making money. So I was doing okay, and then it went to, oh, no, I'm actually making, like, a, a wage. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that felt great. Because A, I had incurred a lot of debt, uh, and B, it was just nice for once looking at a menu and not freaking out. You know, I'm not saying I won't go back to that, fingers crossed, but it was really nice for, it, especially living in New York, to just not wake up in a cold sweat all the time about money. Right. Because I think that's how a lot of us live. It's a it's an expensive city. It's an expensive city, and everything's expensive. And I just never knew where I was going to get. Like, ev- I I would set a goal. I remember I would just be like, I just need to make two grand a month. That was like <laughs> my goal for a while, and then that became stupid. I needed to make so much more than two grand a month because rents were higher, and I didn't know how to cobble together my life. But yeah. and and now you're a mother, so nah, nah, and now I have an offspring. <laughs> Oh my you have a dependent gosh. on your tax forms. Oh my god! Thank God he's not really uh, expensive right now. <laughs> he's not very expensive. It's pretty cheap. So his his <laughs> impact has not been fully felt. Yeah, yet. like the dog is still more expensive than <laughs> him right now. <laughs> Dogs are pricey. Dogs are pricey, and they need yeah. just as much attention. They totally need a lot of attention. Yeah, and they and because I'm not home all the time now, the dog needs to be walked, and yeah. But you've you've been able to to cobble this together for a few years now. Yeah, we'll see. Fingers crossed. We have Sean, seen man. it has been a few years. God, maybe I need to talk to you more often. You seem like a positive influence. <laughs> well, I I asked. I just sit here in a state of like temporary, like you know, mm-hmm. that's like I'm frozen in carbonite. I'm Han Solo. Oh. I'm like, is everything okay? I guess I do. I do try to look. I look up to Yoda. So, Do you? Yeah. Oh, that's good. Um, so I asked this of all of my guests. Yeah. And this mm. is good a segue as any. So if not for my positive influence, <laughs> who, who, who or what has been this, your most recent source of Positivity? advice? Yeah, advice, inspiration. Has somebody said something or you've read? You know, uh... Most recent, yeah. I I will shout out to my husband Jonathan Bayless, mm-hmm. who is he he is uh, critical about a lot of things in life, and not happy about a lot of things in life. But he is always very positive about w- me and what I do, in a way that is I can't even believe he's able to sustain it. <laughs> like it must be real because he doesn't he never lets it drop. <laughs> always the same it's like wow okay he made uh, a vow yeah didn't he he made a vow <laughs> you're right you're right could all be bullshit <laughs> good point uh but he's pretty it's good in the contract. he's pretty good but you know i will say i was feeling a little sorry for myself today because like some you know i, I did a show last night mm-hmm. and it was like a little tough and uh there was just a bunch of like uh there's a lot just a lot of stress around and i was thinking about those darn millennials uh and how jealous I am of how it's, you know, there's this constant thing about like needing to build them up right? Uh, and how I should be a mentor to them and build them up. 
and stuff. And I was complaining to one of the writers that I used for punch up on the show and saying to her, you know, I can't, you know, sometimes I'm like, I don't, I don't feel like I don't have the energy to build you up. And she wrote, you like many of us can count the number of times that we've been built up on no fingers <laughs> on zero hands. And I just kind of remembered that like, it's nobody's job to do that. You kind of just have to do it for yourself. And I, it, what a, that's my kind of encouragement, something negative <laughs> and kind of like life is hard sister. That I was like, yeah, you know what? Fights back in me. I'm back on everybody. <laughs> so, so let me challenge you then. Sure. If a millennial, yeah, or younger, whatever the I don't even know. I just I'm, I don't even know what. The, all I'm saying is that I'm very jealous of people who seem to have confidence and self worth, even if I think they shouldn't. So, <laughs> so if one of these young kids comes up to you, I'm sure, there's people might even tonight. Even tonight, perhaps someone might come up to you mm-hmm. after the moth and ask you, "Yeah, how do I? How do I get? How do I? Yes, how do I get to be?" Happens all the time. So what's the first thing you say, other than go away? (laughs) I say you have to do it all the time. Yeah, because they go, how do I get, that happens all the time. But it's, unfortunately, the way it's phrased now is not like, hey, how do I get to do that? It's basically like, how do I dethrone you? (laughs) That's how it comes across. It's never like, hey, I would like to be part of this too. How do I take your job? Yeah, how do I get your jobs and you just die somewhere in a small hole alone? (laughs) I mean, you seem nice and all, but (laughs) I think I could do this better. Yeah, I'm sharpening a blade right now. Tell me how to do that. (laughs) Exactly. So how do I just kick you off? Hmm. But I just say, uh, yeah, usually if I feel like it, I'll ask some more questions. But I always just say, you got to do it all the time. People hate that. They hate being told they have to do it all the time because that sounds like work. <laughs> it does. They're like they it just want work. me to tell them to text something. You know, I swear to God, fix it, like, it, make it better. Yeah, I was like, send this emoji to this number. That person will make you a star. Um, but I don't think that's a generational thing, though. No, it's always the way. I didn't want to hear it either. I, I, I mean, I am a, I'm a tireless kind of idiot workhorse. Mm-hmm. That is my downfall. Like I will just, I will be a donkey with a, a wheelbarrow attached to me, like looking at the the other stallions like <laughs> running by me on the track. Just be like, nope, just gonna keep working. Um, but I, I feel like people said to me things like, if there is anything else you like doing in your life other than stand up comedy, you should do that. And I just didn't understand what they were saying. It's like whatever, whatever, old man. Uh, and now I get it. I'm like, oh, yeah, because it's just so hard, the amount of uh, effort and uh, mental energy and everything you have to put towards it. You have you got to be up for it. If there's anything else you like doing, it's probably going to be a better choice. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. But I, I also think, like, I don't know. I, I appreciate the stagecraft. So when I see someone on stage who has stagecraft, like you can tell they have seen it all. I love that. Tom Shalhoub, I remember years ago, years and years and years ago, I was on some terrible show with him that was kind of a private party in a stupid setting that made no sense, and the crowd was out of control, drunk, uh, kind of douchey, and they were heckling. And everyone was going up who was a lesser comic than him and dying. And he went up, and there's Tom Shalhoub, mild-mannered, smiley, guy now that you see on Red Eye on Fox, uh, and you've seen him in Barbershop, right, on Fallon. Yeah. And all this, and that guy laid into the hecklers 
and the and the place. He just he had the stagecraft. He had the years of experience that it didn't rattle him. He, he was able to zone in and turn the whole thing around. And I remember watching that and just being like, that's what you have to do. You just have to like look at it and just go, I am just, this is mine. I'm taking everything that happened, that happened here and I'm making it mine. And I feel like that's only from experience. Well, Fear Eyes, thank you so much <laughs> thanks, for being here. <laughs> thank you, Sean. Fitting me into your workhorse oh, schedule. Oh, thanks. The dumb donkey. Yes, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yes, thank you. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Gigglechick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.